Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So hypothetically speaking, if you had a top secret SCI interim clearance and it was stripped away or downgraded, like what's the, how low would you have to go before you were, you know, your clearance is taken away, but you still have to be able to do your job. Yeah. Okay. So Tammy, you've actually had a TSSCI clearance. I have. What's the stuff that like if you got downgraded to secret, you wouldn't be able to see anymore? Uh, well, I'm not going to specify. <laughs> <laughs> But so, okay, the the levels are top secret SCI, top secret, secret, confidential. That's like, ooh, confidential, that sounds low. Confidential, that's like, by the way, your fly is open, (laughs) Confidentially, are you cleared for me to tell you? (laughs) Right. Yeah, but then there's stuff even lower than that. There's like for official use only and sensitive but unclassified. Right, and sensitive, sensitive but unclassified is like... Those pants make your ass look fat. <laughs> <laughs> and like even knowing the official who said it, no, no, that's beyond your clearance. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> this is like the clearance where it's like service deliveries use side door. <laughs> yes. Kids table clearance. Kids table clearance. Sit yeah. and color clearance. SBU actually is not a clearance. Confidential is kids table clearance. SBU sounds like it should be some like, like wolf <laughs> I think, show. I think we totally have the... <laughs> <laughs> Your ass looks fat. <laughs> Confidentially. Yeah, it has been said that your ass looks fat in those pants. <laughs> you are you are cleared for takeoff. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the downgraded edition. Oh no, it's the your ass looks fat edition. <laughs> Alright, fine, it's the uh, your ass looks fat edition. That's gonna go great. <laughs> In the headline. I'm, I'm, is that even going to be allowed to be uploaded? <laughs> Can yeah, you put profanity in the title? We're going to get that little E that means we have explicit language. It's going to be like A asterisk asterisk edition. I've been appreciating how, you know, uh, Mike Pesca now uh, has to put this disclaimer in front uh, of his show that, you know, it sometimes contains explicit content. And he has so much fun. With the warning that there may be explicit content. Listen up, you fuckers. <laughs> no, he never uses explicit content to describe that there will be explicit content, but he uh, does have a lot of fun warning people about the nature of the explicit content. Wow. So confidential is like, don't tell anybody this, but. Don't tell anybody, however. <laughs> Uh, I'm Shane Harris, uncleared reporter, never had a security clearance, probably could never get one. Well, maybe, maybe I could get one. Although multiple informed sources say that you are quite the reporter. I mean, I may know certain above confidential things. It's possible. Uh, I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my friends, Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, guys. Hey. hey. And welcome back. It's great to be back. Yeah, things got a little out of hand when you were away. <laughs> yeah. 
so I hear. It's probably good that you're here. <laughs> I, I would also like to Can say Can we that... explain to you all the things that happened while you were... We'll, we'll mansplain what happened in the mansplaining. Some, some things it's better not to know. I'm just not going to listen to that episode. I'm going to pretend that episode never happened. I think Bill Galston is pretending that episode never <laughs> happened, too. I think it was a raging success. <laughs> On the show this week, Jared Kushner, you remember him, is under... <laughs> under scrutiny for his contacts with foreign officials, but who isn't these days? Uh, Democrats in Congress released their own memo about surveillance of a Trump campaign advisor and ahead of a U.S. visit by Saudi Arabia's future king. How are his reforms playing out on the ground? So we're going to start with um, a little story that uh, I and my colleagues, Carol Lennig and Josh Dossie and Greg Jaffe at The Washington Post, broke yesterday. Uh, which is that foreign officials have been picked up by U.S. intelligence discussing ways that they could play Jared Kushner, taking advantage of his uh, relative naivete, lack of experience in government, as well as his business arrangements uh, and his debts that his company has. Uh, Also, uh, that he was in contact with foreign officials, uh, that he did not report those conversations to the White House, and that this became one of the reasons why he could not get a security clearance, which has now been downgraded to SBU-ish <laughs> realms. Um, I usually do the asking of the questions, but I'll turn it around if you guys want to ask me questions about this story. Okay. Let's start with the big one. Uh, how big a world of hurt is Jared Kushner in right now? I think it's pretty big. I mean, this is – look – and we've said this before, and we've even talked about this before, I think, on the podcast. If this individual's name were not Jared Kushner, I mean, his career in government, however— Would have been over a long, long time, time ago. ago. It never right. would have started. Never would have, probably never would have started, but right. It would have been over quite some time ago, which is not to say that there aren't other people uh, that are not as well-known or as close to the president who have also been working on interim clearances. There are, and we've talked about that feature of this White House, too. But I think it's a big deal uh, in the sense that— There is a whole line of questioning, I think, that uh, we know now from public reporting around the Mueller probe about the Trump campaign's contacts with foreign governments. Uh, Obviously, uh, the whole question of what kinds of things the campaign and the transition team were engaging with with respect to foreign governments and trying to negotiate around foreign policy when the Obama administration was still in power. That category of things is a a live line of inquiry. There's been reporting on uh, everything from money transfers and business deals in foreign countries to the fact that Jared Kushner, when he was at least uh, still a private citizen, was seeking out foreign investment for this property that his family company owns in Manhattan, which has a $1.2 billion debt that comes due in January 2019 which we at least know that officials in the UAE were overheard talking about, which is not a great surprise, I suppose. So it seems to me that, yeah, when you know, when this has now become such an issue that the National Security Advisor found out that this guy was having side channel conversations and not reporting it and took steps to put a stop to it, that seems pretty significant. No, but their relationship is seamless. Oh, it's seamless. <laughs> yes. It even says so in the yeah. story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I think that there... There's that set of things from the during the campaign and during the transition and the sort of consistent lack of candor from the campaign, the transition, and later the administration about all those meetings. There's all that. But I think the other thing that comes through so clearly in your story, Shane, is that 
you know, precisely the reasons why ethics people and intelligence people expressed anxiety about Jared Kushner taking a role in the administration seem to be issues that have been discussed by foreign governments, including some foreign adversaries, as things to exploit. So in other words, the, the problem is no longer just a hypothetical problem right. that should have present, prevented the granting of a clearance. This is a real problem. The governments are actually trying to do this, or at least they're talking about trying to exploit this person's vulnerabilities to advance their own interests relative to the United States. And that's, you know, to me, that says this guy should not be in this in this position at all. It's too dangerous. Um, and so it kind of raises a question of well, why isn't he gone already? Yeah. You know, um, and it, it so I, the, one of the questions I have for you is about the communications that have been intercepted, because it seems to me that this was like the wow of the story is that somebody is leaking the content of SIGINT uh, to the Washington Post. And they're so who exactly did that? <laughs> no, no, no. Presumably they're doing that because they think there's a huge honking problem yeah. here and and it's not getting addressed. And so they are putting it out in the open. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, obviously I can't talk about sourcing, but I think that there's, you know, obviously the, you know, the, the we've talked before about the sensitivity around these kinds of leaks. And I'm not going to pretend they're not sensitive and they're not extraordinary. They are. Um, but I think it is fair to say that there are people who, uh, including people who were not our sources, but who are very much concerned about this. And I think, you know, to your point, Tamara, these were these hypotheticals that people had in mind have been borne out. And it's important to remember, too, that, you know, these are not unique hypotheticals that Jared Kushner. These kinds of concerns apply to anyone who's applying for a clearance. I mean, do you have foreign entanglements? Do you have debts? I mean, you know, it, you know right. It, and it's exactly why we have a clearance precisely. process. It's sort of this is the value of that bureaucratic process on display. Precisely. And I mean, I think it's been clear from reporting on this story and from others, you know, in the same <clears throat> universe that, yeah, there are many people in the government who believe that Jared Kushner, for all the variety of reasons that we're discussing, is more of a liability in his position than he is an asset. And you raised the question as well, you know, why is he still there? And I think the answer to that is because the president has decided he wants him there. And because presumably Kushner on some level has decided he wants or needs to be there. You know, we talked about before, I think it was last week or maybe the week before about that, you know, at the end of the day, that if Kushner can't get a security clearance, and it's clear as day, obviously now that he can't, um, the president could just give him one. <clears throat> and ultimately, and I think this is fascinating in the sort of the power dynamics and the, the, the palace struggle of the White House, Trump punted that decision to John Kelly uh, publicly, said, right. you know, John Kelly's going to make that decision. And a few days later, uh, Kelly decided to go ahead and make good on his new policy and to pull that clearance away. And Jared's clearance gets downgraded to secret, which, you know, you tell me how he can continue doing his job. It doesn't seem possible. So I guess he just hangs around the White House. I mean, effectively kind of neutralized. That seems to me, though, that if, if we're reading the power struggles here, you know, Kelly is wins a victory on this one, right? And I don't think it's any secret at this point that Kelly would like to see Jared Kushner out of the White House. Nothing personal, but I think he thinks he's a liability. Well, he wins a victory if Jared's 
the pulling of Jared's clearance actually means Jared doesn't receive the relevant information anymore. Right. I don't think he wins a victory if Jared does not have the clearance and gets the information anyway, which is very possible. His his father-in-law might tell him, for example. I mean, right. And his father-in-law and may decide, you know, yeah, he needs that, so give it to him. Right. And so if, if you're not – I mean, I think it's a victory for Kelly if – the substance of what it should mean ends up looking anything like what it does mean. Yeah, I th- I think it's also it's important to remember that, you know, we think of this stuff as on, in documents that are in folders that are in locked briefcases and everything is stamped and labeled and so on. But once you read that content, it's in your brain. And the only thing that ultimately guarantees the security of classified information is the people who have access to it treating it with the respect and level of secrecy that it's meant to have. And I think that there are way too many ways that one could imagine um, somebody working in that environment who, you know, whose clearance level is not um, high enough nonetheless getting access to information. And and I think a president who's already um, shown a lot of evidence of being a blabbermouth is probably one of the likeliest vectors. Now, again, the president can, you know, disclose anything he wants to anyone he wants. It's his prerogative. And once he does that, then it's no longer classified. But then if he tells Jared something, and by dint of that, it's no longer TSSCI, like then where else is it going right, to go? Right. right. So I think there's a cascade of problems here in terms of information security. Um, the other process problem that you talk about in the piece is the issue with McMaster and Kushner's having these conversations but not conveying the content. And that's more of like a, it's not actually that uncommon of a problem in the executive branch that there are conversations going on with foreign principles, the content of which doesn't flow into the rest of the system as quickly as it should. It's one reason why um, people have been aghast at the lack of note takers in some of Tillerson's meetings or President Trump's meetings, because it's the note takers who ensure that that information gets conveyed. And if it's a private phone call or a late night meeting or something, you know, that's always been an issue, I think. Um, So it sounds like the problem here, and I'm curious, you know, um, your take on this, having done the reporting, it sounds like the problem here is not the normal problem, but that there there was sort of a pattern or a systematic not sharing of information. Yeah, there's definitely was, it was systematic. When McMaster came in after replacing Mike Flynn, it, it was news to him that Jared Kushner was routinely having these conversations and just not reporting them. And he was taken aback by that. And, you know, he learned about it through his own intelligence briefings, by the way, which is a fascinating scenario to contemplate that his briefer is in there and says, um, you know, General, we have something to tell you, uh, which again points to the fact that these things were being discovered through the course of okay, can we intelligence just gathering. Stop for a moment and say like Kislyak's phone was tapped. Like clearly these other foreign officials in Washington's phones are tapped. Is that, you know, can we just go on the assumption now and why hasn't the White House been going on this assumption? That all these guys' conversations are intercepted while they're here in the United States, and why would anyone think that they're not being listened to? That that kind of baffles me too. I I don't, it, I don't know why at this point you would not just assume that 
you can't hide this. I mean, not for too long anyway. So is that Kushner being naive or is that Kushner being arrogant and these diplomats being arrogant? I don't know. And I mean, and I mean, one question might a logical question. I don't have the answer is considering that Jared Kushner at one point contemplated setting up a back channel to Russia for the purpose of having conversations and avoiding, as far as we understand, detection by the intelligence community. Was he doing something in these conversations to take steps to, to, that he thought were going to mask it? I don't know the answer, but I think it's a fair question. And to your point tomorrow about the process issues, I mean, you got you tell me because you've been in this position with if having a high clearance. The conversations that Kushner is having with foreigner with foreign officials, that or some something that happens in that we are told becomes a reason why he can't get a security clearance. Now, it seems to me that the not reporting things to the National Security Advisor, that's not the thing that dings you for a security clearance. It's more likely that it is something about the conversations you had or what was said in those conversations. And complete full disclosure, we do not know. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be coy about that. But I think what this points to is that you know, if our reporting is correct, and I believe that it is, that it was the it was the conversations themselves that became the impediment to him getting a clearance. It seems to me that it's whatever was said or whatever was done around those conversations that is the greater concern here. Not the process is not, but like process doesn't get you dinged on a clearance. I don't right. Think. So, I mean, total speculation here, but what would explain that, right? It seems to me that there are at least two possibilities I can think of off the top of my head. One is that um, whatever was said in the in the conversations Jared Kushner was having with these foreign officials, when he was asked about it, he said something else. In other words, that he wasn't forthright mm-hmm. about the content of those conversations. Um, another possibility is that there's some information that he revealed or that they revealed that itself is troubling. Um you know, if there was a discussion of his debt, for mm-hmm. example, I mean, the, the fact of the debt is public, but if a foreign government official talks to you about it, there might be some implication there. Um, if there's some kind of quid pro quo, uh, obviously that would be hugely troubling, but just the fact that the foreign government official might bring it up or that Jared might bring it up mm-hmm. could be troubling. Th- again, this is speculative, but I'm just, you know, I'm trying to think through what but the that's possibilities in the are. Of things that it yeah. Could- I have a uh, question about the story. The most tantalizing line in the story uh, to me was that Mueller was asking questions about the process and protocol that Kushner used to make uh, appointments with foreign government people outside of the normal NSC process. I have been waiting for a while to see whether this... Uh, um, spousal abuse, security clearance story, and the Russia investigation story collide with one another. And this struck me as uh, Kushner is where that would happen because he has this SF-86 omission problem since the beginning vis-a-vis Russia, Russian officials. But I, how do you read that Mueller is asking questions at least around the margins of this yeah. thing? Well, at a top level, I read it as, you know, Mueller asks lots of questions potentially, so I can't be too sure about it. But 
what what struck me about that piece is does he want to know for instance what steps kushner was taking to set up meetings and try and evade any kind of reporting or detection i mean going back to the back channel issue was there something about the way that he set these conversations up that involved you know doing it in a different facility or or, or why did he or more to the just basic question why did he not want these things to be reported i mean if we assume that part of what Mueller is looking at and i do assume this is actions that the administration and before that the transition were taking vis-a-vis foreign officials that potentially violated some law. Um, I think knowing how you actually engaged in communications with said officials is a pretty basic question. Um, No, but we don't know much more beyond that. And it's not a central piece of the story, but it's this kind of very, as you put it, tantalizing bit of, you know, why it is that this is part of the Mueller purview. I'll only say also that We've known for some time, and we reported this at the Post a while back, that Kushner is of interest in the probe. I mean, we don't know a lot more than that. There's been no reporting that he's a subject of the probe or a target of the probe, and no indications that his lawyers have been told that he is. But, I mean, you know, we all you know, read the same stories, and you know, the chatter that I think that you hear is Jerry Kushner is very much of interest. So, in a way, it doesn't surprise me that Mueller would be looking at any number of things that Kushner might have been doing while he was in the White House, particularly given that there is this fairly voluminous reporting that foreign officials were saying, hey, we know this guy has debts and we know he has issues. Let's see how we can target in on that. Yeah, I guess um, there is also the sort of simple or Occam's razor explanation for, you know, if there was an attempt by Kushner to hide or to conceal or at least not to share information about his conversations with foreign officials, which is that, you know, these guys didn't trust the government or the intelligence community that they were about to take charge of right. and then that they then did char- take charge of. They they have operated from the beginning with a sense of complete mistrust of the system and the process and the people who work for them. And they also have a very strong sense of their own brilliance and capacity And, you know, and so he didn't feel like he had to tell anybody. He didn't feel like he had to check with anybody. He didn't feel like he had to report out to anybody because he doesn't feel accountable to anybody except the president of the United States, who, you know, still doesn't seem to have any problem with any of this, by the way. Um, More to come. The, The president did, however, tweet this morning his rage that the um, attorney general asked the inspector general of the Justice Department to investigate the uh, the alleged FISA abuses uh, that the president has been complaining about, marking, I think, the first time that a president has ever uh, called for something to be subject to an investigation, gotten what he wanted, and then complained about it on Twitter. That, yeah, the first time a president has done that. Yeah, I suppose probably. Oh. I mean, just, you know. <laughs> it's the first time for everything, as yeah. we found out repeatedly in this administration. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, more to come, as I say. Um, let's move on to our next topic, um, the demo. Wait, is it a demo or a dememo? I think no, it's... We, we call it the demo here. Ben and Quinta Jurassic term the, uh, the hipsy Democrats 
response to the Nunes memo, the demo. I the like Demaca memo. No, it's the, the demo. demo. I, I like the multisyllabic the thing. Because because per- first people were calling the Nunes memo the memo. The memo. Because it was it was meh. Not, it was kind of not that impressive, and so this one needed a nickname too. So, it's so the is dem- the demo memo like the dope memo? I mean, it's more than or it's, it's pretty impressive. I mean, by your read and Quinta's read, this is not. As the president said, I think he termed it a bust or a nothing, or he used both those words. But you don't think so? No. So, look, first of all, it shouldn't have been released. Shouldn't have been released. No, the other one shouldn't have been released. The memo shouldn't have been released. The memo shouldn't have been released. And this uh, document is, you know, continues a problem of releasing a whole lot of material that shouldn't be out there. Um, I suppose it had to be released once the other one was. But the idea that we're having, you know, this discussion in public is, you know, uh, outrageous. Um, but look, the importance of the demo is that the Mehmo had alleged as its sort of central contention that the Steele dossier was the kind of origin story of the FISA page uh, the Carter page FISA, and this pretty well suggests that that's kind of, you know, not true. And then also a lot of people seem to believe, uh, which the the memo did not allege and actually sort of contradicts if you read it carefully, that the Steele dossier and the Carter page FISA are kind of the origin story of the entire Russia investigation. And this memo makes really clear that that isn't true. Um, And more broadly speaking, it it shows that the FBI had a lot of information about Carter Page, including some pretty recent contacts and interviews with him that were, uh, you know, involved uh, conduct that you would normally cause the FBI to be suspicious of somebody, and that's before you get to that hat. Um, and uh, the, hat. It, the hat is is outrageous <laughs> um, and second. warrants the investigation is, all the, by itself. The hat is a mystery. <laughs> um, and, you know, it really does look like the FBI – uh, followed something like the regular order here. Uh, at least that's the impression I walked away from these two competing memos with, all of which makes Nunez's conduct in this regard and the conduct of the House Republican majority you know, very hard to defend. So I, I think Nunez's conduct has been mystifying for a good long time um, since the whole unmasking thing came up. A year ago? Is that a year ago? Jeez. It's getting on there. We um, have masks in this office, by the way, if you want to unmask somebody. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> but so I think here's the cynic in me, okay? Both the Nunes memo and this Democratic memo are are interesting and relevant to uh, geeky people following this investigation like us. But to the Americans, you know, the whole issue of making this public so that there's some transparency in the process and the American people should be able to judge whether the FBI is doing a good job or not. I don't think that this Democratic memo makes a damn bit of difference. 
earning our explicit label. I really want to earn it. Um, because the first thing out is the Nunes memo and the narrative behind it. The Democratic memo was produced to rebut. And rebuttals don't work in public opinion. And every time there is a news story about the Democratic memo that's rebutting the Nunes memo, it just reminds people of the message of the Nunes memo, mm -hmm. which is that the, this is about the Steele dossier and the FBI is corrupt and partisan. And so I think, if anything, in terms of the public narrative, if the winning the public opinion war component of this, releasing the Democratic memo just makes it worse. Yeah, I see that for sure. <clears throat> In the, I guess what my question was after reading the memo was maybe this is a variation on yours is, does it really matter? I mean, these memos are playing to audiences, it seems to me, for whom the facts are negotiable. Right. And I'm saying not only does it not matter in terms of taking down the Nunes memo, it may even make it worse by making it linger in people's minds or dig, worm its way in deeper. So right. I, I, agree with you that it may have that effect. Um, I also think the truth has some intrinsic value of its own and allowing the House Intelligence Committee chairman to walk out, release a document that um, is that conveys a very deep untruth and not respond to it and rebut it is a dan damaging thing. And it may be that there's you know, that the immediate political consequence is that it keeps a discussion in the news that's corrosive of the institutions standing in the public eye. But I do think in the long run, it's important to have factual untruths about about the institutions rebutted in a significant way, if only for longer term posterity. So do we think after this is over now, Nunes has talked about having this phase two investigation where he keeps alluding to information that they got from the State Department. It's not at all clear to me what he's talking about. I this is the second time Nunes has sort of launched on a campaign to what is his in his mind, you know, bring out the truth of what really is going on in La Ferrus. It seems to me that this was a <clears throat> first you had the unmasking, and then you have the memo, which is kind of a bigger deal. I just assume that Devin Nunes is going to go for round three, right? Oh, sure, because his purpose here, uh, it's not just that the facts are negotiable, it's that the facts really don't matter. This is the legacy of Daryl Issa and Trey Gowdy, okay, which is that saying that there's something there is enough to yeah. make something be there, and you can create a story and a controversy and a scandal where nothing exists simply by claiming that there's something there and then because you're a committee chairman, you have the power to subpoena and hold hearings and and imply. And there may be no there there at all. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, our last point on this. On, on Gowdy came out and didn't exactly shoot down the Republican memo when it came out. But having, to do a, having been the person well, who provided the information behind it. But really, really, yeah, that, exactly, so, which is not to, not to say that he was distancing from it, but distancing from, I think, 
Nunes's pitching of it and trying to come out and do cleanup and explain what he thought was really there. And well, thought, and he also decided he's not going to run again. And right. so, you know, it's maybe he's found some kind of conscience. And so now that his political career is over, he's willing to put limits on something that he himself was willing to exploit without that, limit. Yeah, I think that that's probably right. And and, and I th- and you know. <laughs> no, no credit, Trey. Sorry. <laughs> or maybe quarter credit. But the Demo- it seemed in the Democratic memo, I thought, you know, I, I personally thought of just on the objective case did a pretty good job of demolishing a lot of what the Republican memo was trying to say. But on this piece of what percentage of the total did the Steele memo make up, that's a point where they are not reconciled. And this feels very much like a he claims, he claims sort of thing. And I suppose I mean, most people aren't really paying attention to it that closely. They've made up their mind whether they think the Steele dossier was important to it or not. But that's really a place where... Gowdy just dug in, and I think Republicans really do still believe that the Steele memo is kind of the urtext of the whole Russia probe, and I I don't think that's going away. Right. So that is the core of the the thing, and there's there's a a sub-surtext level of that and a subtext level of that, right? The surtext level is how much of the FISA application depends on information from this from Chris Steele, and that's that's a knowable factual question. Um, and my assumption is, by the way, since both sides maintain this, that you know, you know maintain their positions here, that some you know that there there was a lot of information before. But that the thing that put it over the top was information from Chris Steele. Uh, And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, So that's, you know, my guess as to that. And so it is it probably is important to the the Carter Page FISA, Um, although I do think Schiff does a pretty effective job in laying out what the background against which that information came in was, which is that this is somebody who'd been under scrutiny before, who'd had a recent interview with the FBI he'd been about under his- FISA surveillance before. The memo doesn't say that, but that's now been a reported fact. Um, right. So, you know, I I think that there's a you know the 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 more tectonic question is to what extent does the russia investigation find its origins in the steele dossier and this is where i think the schiff memo is really quite effective right in in saying no it really started in july uh, of 2016 because of the papadopoulos material um it would have continued irrespective of this and by the way, uh, the information that was generated through this is not the information that has driven it. Um, now, it doesn't quite say that directly, but that's sort of the implication of it. And I do think on that point, the you know, to the extent that there are a lot of people in the conservative world who are convinced that this is kind of the the where the the egg from which the entire sort of La Ferrousse hatched. They're deluding themselves yeah. about that. But I think what's likely, and I think that is that they're going to continue, some will continue to believe that forever. Like, I think that the Steele dossier is going to become the grassy knoll of the Russia oh, stuff. Totally. And yeah. 20 years from now and 50 years from now, there will be 
people who believe that that was the original sin of this whole investigation and it discredits whatever is found, whatever is proven, they're going to go to that as sort Uh, of their uh, saving. I was was really struck by that when I did my uh, long conversation with Mike Duran, who, which, you know, I ran as a sort of two-part Lawfare podcast. And Mike, who is a, you know, a, a Trump supporter at the Hudson Institute and former colleague of us, of ours at Brookings, um, you know, he is, the, the Steele dossier looms extremely large for him. And it's, it's, you know, the egg from which, or the Zeus's head from which all the gods were born. And, and I think that's a, you It's know, the grassy knoll. It, it is. You know, yeah. I, I think this memo should put it to rest and it won't. And that's a, you know, I I think it is, you know, part of the part of the ideational landscape with which we're going to be dealing for a while is that a lot of people really seem to have internalized the importance of the Steele dossier. And that I was going to say that that might change, but maybe it won't if many more pieces of the dossier are ultimately proven publicly to be true. Or if many more indictments happen that patently don't depend on it. Right, right. All right, let's move on to our third topic. Tamara was not here last week, as we all know, we've already discussed, but she was in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, heir apparent, more than the heir apparent. The crown prince. The crown prince. Uh, is coming in March, right, for yep. a visit it was reported today. Um, so you had the chance to be on the ground, and I gather moving around in ways that you couldn't when you were there before. Yeah. Uh, I mean, previously you've been there in official capacities as well. KSA so, today. KSA <laughs> today. So obviously, I mean, you're there at a time when Mohammed bin Salman is implementing these, you know, for Saudi Arabia, pretty dramatic reforms, particularly with regards to women in society, but sort of what's seen as kind of a, a modernizer. I don't know if liberalizer is too strong a word, but yes. I mean, that's too strong a word. <laughs> I'm just setting you up here. <laughs> we'll get there. It's Vatican II in Saudi Arabia. Um, <clears throat> just like crossing all kinds of metaphors there. Um, but so, I mean, what were your, I mean, I'm curious, like what were your initial impressions from the last time that you were there? Yeah, so I think that's a good way to start, actually, because I was there last three years ago. And before that, I think maybe five years before that. So these are fairly widely spaced visits. Um, and uh, and it's important to remember that King Salman's predecessor, King Abdullah, who had been crown prince, but the effective ruler because the king was very ill for a long time, um, had his own reform program and uh, that also related to some degree to uh, women's status and social liberalization, but it never went nearly as far as the things that we are hearing now from Mohammed bin Salman. And yet, you know, when I visited the kingdom the last two times and when I visited as a, as a U.S. government official, you know, you would go out on the street and you would see the virtue police, the commission for the Uh, promotion of virtue and the prevention of vice, they would be walking on the street. And if they saw you as a woman walking on the street and your abaya was open in the front or too short, you know, they would notice you. Uh, They would notice if you were accompanied. 
they would notice if you're going in the family entrance or the ladies' entrance of a building and rather than the like, main you know, entrance. Tell you stop that. Or um, I personally that. was never approached, but yes, that was what they did, and they had powers of arrest, and they would, you know, go around the malls and it, and prevent young men and young women from speaking to one another if they were not part of the same family, things like that. So, on this visit, we walked around quite a bit in the streets of Riyadh. Jeddah and Jizan, which is a town down in the south near the Yemen border on the Red Sea, I saw zero evidence of the virtue police. Wow. And what I was told is that they, first of all, they've been officially denied powers of arrest. But what I was told is that they are still salaried, but essentially confined to barracks and to mm. doing sort of uh, public awareness campaigns. So they had a, a big banner up on their headquarters building in English and Arabic, by the way, uh, which is their latest public awareness campaign called My Prayers, My Happiness. So they're still promoting virtue, but let's say using soft power. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, I did notice probably partly as a as a result of not having these guys around to enforce the norms, I noticed more colorful uh, headscarves. I noticed abayas that are not simply black. Um, but I also noticed that we went to a very large cultural festival with thousands of people in attendance from around Riyadh, which is a city of five million people. The, the standardization of uh, women's dress you know, the Arabian Peninsula is large and different regions have different traditions. You used to see some variations in the kind of face mask that people would wear or the way they would wrap their headdress. And it's really a, it, it, the, the homogenization of, um, of Saudi culture is visible in the homogenization of women's dress. And I did find that interesting. So, you know, for so all of this to say that with these socially liberalizing reforms, there are things that come from the top down that create more space for women to make choices. But there's also a strong cultural force here. And there's been two generations of education and using the media and using these other forces to create a kind of very strong norm around a particular narrow austere vision of modern Islam. And that's what most people do. Did you meet people who thought that these reforms were happening too quickly? Well, look, I think it's important to realize that this is a hugely ambitious set of economic reforms and fiscal reforms, but only a very few pieces have been implemented so far. Um, so a lot of this is still aspirational, and that's true on the social liberalization side as well. So they've announced they're going to reopen cinemas, but they haven't done it yet. They've announced that women will be allowed to drive, but they haven't done it yet. So there's a sense of excitement and anticipation. And frankly, after having, you know, octogenarian ruler after octogenarian ruler, there are a lot of people excited about this. And you can understand why it feels really refreshing. This is a country where half the population is, you know, our our kids are under the age of majority. And so having a young, dynamic crown prince who says he represents them is also very exciting. So I think there's a lot of hope, um, especially among Saudis who are more globalized, those who've had the opportunity of Western education, those who feel prepared to participate in a private sector economy, who feel like they have managerial competence and they'll have a chance to show their skills. But there are millions and millions of Saudis, including a lot of young Saudis, 
for whom that's not true. Mm. They've been through the public school system. They've been through state universities, probably majored in Islamic studies. You know, they're not going to be the engineers and businessmen of the Saudi future. And I think Vision 2030 doesn't really address them yet in any visible way. But all of those Saudis, whether they're prepared for the new age or not, are now paying a 5% value-added tax on everything they buy. Mm. They're all paying higher electricity prices. They're all paying higher fuel prices. And so the some of the pain is starting to come, and the benefits are probably not going to get equally distributed. It strikes me as, as you know, Mohammed bin Salman makes this trip to the United States next month. I mean, this will be – I would imagine he's viewing this, correct me if I'm wrong, or that the government's viewing this as something of – his introduction to America. I mean, I don't know if he has a Big speech time. plan to Congress or anything that visible, but... He's going to be here reportedly for like two or three weeks. He's going to oh, wow. come to New York and Washington. He's going to go out to the West Coast. He's going to go to Houston. So yeah, it's going to be a, a major introduction. And I think um, a big part of the goal here is to bring American investment and American business into Saudi to try and boost the private sector in the way that Vision 2030 needs them to do. So there's a national security element of this that I think is interesting to explore and maybe both. Particularly after he meets with Jared Kushner. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, we laugh, but I mean, it's, yeah. That well, and let's remember it's his brother is the, is the Saudi ambassador in Washington and presumably meets with Jared Kushner quite yeah. frequently. And Jared and MBS are, they're close, I mean, in terms of how officials go. Um, but, you know, there is tremendous anxiety about Mohammed bin Salman within the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, Bruce Rydell here at Brookings has actually talked pretty eloquently about that. Mohammed bin Nayef, who was in this role before Mohammed bin Salman <laughs> removed him, extracted him uh, like a bad tooth, uh, was kind of our guy as far as the intelligence community saw him and somebody who was a reliable partner in the war on terror and had literally the scars to prove it. Um, it seems to me that, you know, while Mohammed bin Salman is here on sort of a big PR campaign and introducing himself, there is a significant contingent, at least in this town, that is very wary of this person and, and is not at all. I mean, maybe they were happy about the reforms, but are not completely uh, on board with this individual and I think have a lot of misgivings about him and they question his leadership. So I think you're right, Shane, and I think that there are three sources of anxiety. Um one is specifically in the U.S. intel community and people who have worked on counterterrorism. Mohammed bin Nayef was their reliable, wonderful partner for decades as interior minister before he became crown prince. And so there's a little bit of just resentment that, you know, our best friend has been pushed aside. By um, this 30-something. Right, by this, by this upstart. This millennial. <laughs> no offense, Matt. But there is... a. But there is, I think, some substantive anxiety, both about the what some would call a reckless set of foreign policy proclivities um, by Mohammed bin Salman, particularly the war in Yemen, which he that is his baby. his baby. He may try to deflect responsibility for it uh, onto the military or onto others, but it, it's his creation and he owns it. And it is a huge destabilizer and it it does not have an exit ramp anywhere in sight. But then the third thing, one analyst made this point to me when I was in the kingdom, I think it's it's quite insightful, that the Saudis 
Um, to the rest of the world, the Saudis have had two things that have made them an attractive and valuable partner. They've had oil and they've had the stability and predictability of the royal family, right? A lot of other governments change around, but mm. the Saudis have stayed the same. And one of the things Mohammed bin Salman did by ousting Mohammed bin Nayef as crown prince, coming in as this brash 30-something, is disrupted the reliability of royal succession See, that's what in the kingdom. Do. They, yeah, they just disrupt things. You, you know, know we have really... stability. And then the millennials come around and they screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I do think that um, we're less worried about oil because it's not scarce anymore. And the price is probably going to stay lower for a good long time. And now the Saudi royal family looks it, like it's in upheaval or at least it's unpredictable in ways that we didn't expect. And that kind of makes Saudi um, – it, it makes a lot of people, I think, more hesitant to invest a lot in relationships in Saudi Arabia. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Ben, you want to go first? I am this evening interviewing over at the Hoover Institution's Washington Bureau um, uh, one Max Boot, the author of a really gripping new book, uh, uh, The Road Not Taken, <laughs> which is my big, fat, thick object lesson that lands with a thud when it lands on your desk. It is a, a, a kind of striking biography of um, uh, uh, Edward Lansdale, who was the uh, a kind of legendary CIA uh, officer who um, – uh, Max kind of treats as the sort of godfather of modern kind of counterinsurgency strategy uh, and who in Max's telling offered a, a sort of different set of Vietnam policies uh, for the uh, pacification uh, and, and bolstering of the state of South Vietnam that were not followed. Uh, and it is, it is a really interesting book and I uh, – uh, urge everyone to listen to the interview that I'm going to do with him this evening and also to check out the book. And that'll be on the Lawfare Podcast? It'll be on the Lawfare Podcast. Awesome. awesome. Okay. I'll share my object next. Um, listeners know I've talked about my <clears throat> uh, uh, family ancestry and building my family tree. Uh, and that Your I had grandpa and his military service. My grandpa and his military service and the great-great-grandfathers and their military service going back to the revolution. So I did Ancestry DNA. And it will surprise no one here to learn that I am white as a damn ghost. Shane <laughs> Harris, colon, white guy. You know, Shane I was Harris, thinking... Viking. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking you were looking a little pale today, a little pale. Shane. Yeah. Just, just my people. Uh, so Ireland, Scotland, Wales, 43%. Scandinavia, 20%. <laughs> there's like, and then there's hey, like... that's diversity. That's the tall part of you. That's the tall... That's, that's, that's most of Northern that's right. Europe. <laughs> it's basically Northern Europe. These are our people. Now, the scan, it's interesting. The Scandinavian part... I was aware of from one line of the family that I haven't fully investigated yet. I was not expecting it to be 20%. Uh, so it's uh, making me think i got some more research to do. But I love how Ancestry DNA like, also gives you these like low confidence ratings, like low confidence Southern European. Like, yeah, I think that's a pretty low confidence suggestion. <laughs> I, I think we should start putting a Danish circle over the A in Harris and Shane. Hottest, so yeah. yeah. Shane, Shane Harris. Shane. 
Well, I'm going <laughs> on a trip with my family to Scandinavia this summer. Wow. So I'm going to see some more of my like people. like a homecoming. I know. My, my minor people. The Most of them are still my homies in uh, Great Britain. But yeah, there I am. There you are. Wow, you're all over Northern Europe. Yeah, yeah I don't need I don't need ancestry dot com uh, ancestry DNA to tell me like I'm all like Polish Romanian yeah. pale of settlement Jew maybe maybe, maybe a <laughs> Cossack who wandered yeah, through exactly sixty nine dollars in your spit. <laughs> all right, tomorrow what's your object? All right, well we were talking about Mohammed bin Nayef and his time as uh, Interior Minister and Counterterrorism Czar in Saudi Arabia, and so I wanted to share with you. The gift that I received mm. for visiting the Mohammed bin Nayef Center, uh, which is um, casually known as the Jihadi Rehab Center, where a select few, maybe a, a well, couple hundred in total, convicted Saudi jihadis go for reprogramming. And all the Guantanamo, <laughs> that's where all the Guantanamo people yes. got sent back and, and reintegrated into society. Exactly. And it was like, it, it was a great uh, part of the uh, depopulation of Guantanamo. It was, was a, that a, right, it was a Bush era uh, partnership with the Saudis that enabled, by opening the center, Mohammed bin Nayef enabled Bush to send Saudi Guantanamo detainees back to the kingdom. I don't know how long those guys hung out at the rehab center, but I have a feeling it was a good long time. We spent a couple hours touring the center. We got an extensive debrief on the way they do their work. And, uh, and it's a lovely facility. It, it, like I said, it holds a very few uh, detainees as compared to a prison population of jihadis in Saudi Arabia that may be more like 20,000 people. But, uh, but for those select few who go to the center, it's a very comfortable place. But what was most striking to me is that they couldn't tell me their budget. They couldn't give me an estimated cost per detainee or rather beneficiary, as they call them. Um, but they could present me and every other member of my delegation when we left with this beautiful hand-painted craft-made box full of very fancy Saudi dates. I'm guessing it's about $100 for each wow. one of these boxes. And, for each date. <laughs> <laughs> and there were like two dozen of us. So whatever else, the representation budget for the Mohammed bin Nayef Center must be pretty generous. Wow. I like that. Well, enjoy those. Thank you. They're delicious. I did declare them to customs when I came in. Yeah. Just to Look just dangerously. To be clear. Get caught. <laughs> well, I declare that's the end of the podcast. I do declare. I do declare. I do declare. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. <clears throat> you can find our show page along with lots of other information on the internet. Yep. The world's knowledge. <laughs> One of these days, the old show page is going to vanish in a puff of smoke. It's going to go <laughs> poof. Never to be seen again. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can follow us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. We've got some great reviews. I lately. know. I've been reading them. They are so yeah. awesome. There's some Thank really you fun guys. ones. Yeah, and people. to everyone who's complaining on the reviews about the audio levels, we're working on that. I don't know what's what I don't understand what's going on. It's because you talk too softly. It's because I talk too softly. It's because I talk too loudly. <laughs> <laughs> and I am just right in the middle. <laughs> Sorry.
Sorry, guys. Sorry, we hear Sorry you. Matt. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get right on that. <laughs> Our audio engineer this week reconsidering his decision is Matthew Kahn. The long-suffering Matthew long-suffering. Kahn. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Jared Kushner and the Clearance Sale Singers with their new hit, Going Out of Business. Yeah. Oh, nice. I just thought that one up. Um, if Sophia Yam were to play with Jared Kushner, I think that she would need clearance that set her far above him. I think she would have that clearance. I think she'd have it. I think I think Sophia could like easily get TSSCI clearances. Okay, no, she's had a lot of foreign contacts the last couple of years <laughs> living in China. Yeah, that's it. But as many as Jared Kushner's? Probably not. We'll see. We'll see, folks. We'll she hasn't see. borrowed as much money from the foreign <laughs> contacts. That's true. Uh, on behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 